Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the AltMed podcast series. Um, with me today, my co-host Mitch. And hey. We've got a very special guest, but before I introduce, I just want to say to everyone, please hit subscribe. I don't know where you're getting your feed. Are you listening to this on Spotify, um, the Apple podcast app, YouTube, whatever it is. In fact, just stop listening right now. Go and hit subscribe and then come back to this video, okay? We'd love to get some more subscribers. We can see you're all listening, <laughs> you're all viewing the videos, but yeah, we just want to build that subscriber base. Yeah, so, it's smell the desperation. It's great. Oh, just love get on it. board. Get on board. <laughs> um, Mitch, you love a subscriber. I know you do. Um, Always have. It is our great pleasure to introduce our guest today, um, Dr. Shu N.G. How are you, Shu? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure always to have you around and have a chat. We've uh, enjoyed a few in the past and very happy and excited to put it on camera this time. So, That's yeah, right. thanks. Thank you. I think, um, as per usual, we kick off with a little bit of a background for those who may not have come across your name just yet for the very small few. In the I was going to say, there would only be a handful that haven't given you maybe, up. Maybe, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I <laughs> Australia, but yes, if you wouldn't mind taking us through your background, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks. Um, so uh, I, sometimes when people ask me that, I go, "Where do I start?" Because I've been practicing medicine for you know ten years now since I finished medical school over ten years ago, and I just did so many different things between surgery and. Um, and so I've thought, and I don't think I was cut out to be a surgeon. So then I was really interested in cancer care and um, was just really had a lot of heart for patients with cancer. And so then, and I did a lot of breast surgery in the past as well, but then I sort of thought, what's the other, you know, uh, arm of oncology? And I, I uh, delved into radiation oncology, so treating um, cancer with radiotherapy. And I did that training for three and a half years. Uh, and, you know, so I've learned a lot through there as well. And I also went to the States for a couple of years to do a research fellowship um, in New York City in Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, so all those are just really good experiences. And I guess, I guess it just gave me a really broad overview of, you know, medicine in general. But it was not only till when I was doing oncology that um, I had so many patients with issues like chronic pain and you know, nausea, vomiting and things. And I actually did, I do remember having a patient undergoing radiotherapy and I was, I was asking, oh, how's your pain going? And they went, yeah, you know, it's, um, I've, I've started on medicinal cannabis. And this must have been about 2016 or 2017 when it was really first legalized. Um, and, and I was like, oh, medicinal cannabis? Well, this like hippie backyard medicine never really know if it was, you know, a real medical thing. And so it really sparked my interest then, I guess. I left it for a bit. Um, and then uh, later on, saw uh, that Canadoc clinics were, were hiring. And, you know, that was uh, over a year ago now. And it's just incredible, you know, the, the, the kind of patients you see and the, the, the outcomes you get as well. And I really just thought it was something to just... Uh, uh, had some experience in, but it's just been so uh, fulfilling. Um, patients have such good outcomes and effects that, and you see such a wide range of patients as well. And even though I still have um, a good sort of um, uh, interest in cancer care and palliative care, 
uh, and and you know and seeing how underutilized medicinal cannabis is, but even then seeing a wide range from mental health disorders to chronic pain to you know multiple sclerosis. Even just today, I had someone who had asthma, and he just had so many like different inhalers, and he goes, "I'm just at my wit's end. You know what? What? What can I? What else can I explore?" And so it's just it's it's just an ever evolving field. That's so yeah, a bit of a background. That's so and just. So let me get this straight. So you finish up at, at med school. You had your two-year fellowship over in, in New York. Was that in um, as part of your training in radiation oncology or was that separate? Yeah, no, that was separate. So I did you know, a couple of years in general medicine, general surgery in Australia first. And then I saw, uh, did some unaccredited time in so like non-training time in radiation oncology and then uh, went over to, to New York to do a research fellowship in GI cancer and came back and then started uh, radiation oncology then. But although my research was also in, in, in sort of radiotherapy related um, uh, subjects as well. So yeah, so I came back and then did three, three and a half years of radiation oncology training. And then after I worked a little bit in, you know, medical visa, um, uh, immigration visa rather uh, work and things and even some COVID related things as well. So, um, uh, it's certainly been quite a journey in the past past year, especially with COVID too. But yeah, yeah it's very very broad broad um, experience, I suppose. What will you do? And that that really, um, I think sometimes we hear the term, um, you know, medicinal cannabis clinician or medicinal cannabis doctor, um, but it just kind of goes to show how broad um, the background of the person that you might be seeing that that kind of that carries that title. Um, and although I appreciate that you know, you're not officially titled an oncologist. It's great to have you on because I think that your experience in, um, you know, as a, as a trainee in, in that field um, would lend itself um, really well to, to having a discussion about, you know, the role that medicinal cannabis plays in, in, in assisting people living with cancer. Um, yeah. Of course it's, you know, as we always say on this, it's, it's not appropriate for everyone. And these are um, discussions between patients and, and their treating doctors, but um, perhaps mm. if it's um, possible, it might be good to just jump into that topic and, and see, um, I think there's a lot of confusion around um, what the role that medicinal cannabis plays in, in somebody's um, oncology treatment. Can you perhaps talk to us about when it is prescribed, um, you know, and, and mm. the, how, some of your experiences with your patients, if any stories that you have or anecdotes, um, we'd love to hear. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been, it's, it's really interesting because especially having that sort of oncology experience sometimes I do inevitably put on my oncology hat as well and, and talk about that sort of thing you know based on on my experience too so you know medicinal cannabis at the moment it's not it, the, the indication is not for cancer treatment so it's not meant to replace chemotherapy or radiotherapy or immunotherapy in the treatment of cancer but what you know is quite helpful we know that patients who have cancer or have had cancer treatment um, tend to experience a lot of symptoms like anxiety, um, chronic pain, whether it's from the cancer or from cancer treatment, because radiotherapy can sometimes have a long-term effect with, with um, you know, uh, inflammation and chronic pain, but also with uh, cancer treatment-related 
nausea, vomiting, and quite often also lots of these patients with cancer or uh, undergoing treatment are on some form of steroid therapy that causes you know, uh, insomnia. And so it really is used more at the moment anyway, not disputing that, you know, 10, 20 years down the road might be used as some form of cancer treatment. But at the moment anyway, what's been shown is that it does help as an adjunct, a supportive therapy for patients who have, you know, the previously mentioned uh, symptoms to help with them with their cancer journey. So, I mean, I do tend to get a lot of, you watch, you know, these documentaries about how, um, uh, I think some people in Queensland uh, have, have, you know, treated cancer and cancer have uh, uh, regressed with CBD oil or topical treatments and things. But all those are just, I'm not saying that it does, didn't work for those patients, but it's not something that's been put to rigorous testing. We don't know what dose works for people. We don't know what formulation works for, for patients. And so it's still, you know, quite an unknown, but we know that it's quite helpful for patients who have um, the symptoms surrounding uh, their cancer diagnosis or their treatment. Um, yeah. I guess I also have, you know, patients, like I had a patient with, with GBM, so uh, um, advanced brain tumor, who was, had surgery and had radio, three weeks of chemo radiotherapy. And he was quite, you know, he didn't really have any symptoms, but the family, and fair enough, they were quite uh, concerned about some residual cancer. And they read on forums that, that um, medicine cannabis can help with tumor regression. And they're not wrong, but the, those studies are done mainly in animal models, for example, to show that, you know, maybe a balanced THC CBD might be helpful for tumor regression, but it's not something that's necessarily been, been proven or shown at the moment in, you know, um, in, in real life patients, I guess. Mm. And that's that's the point as well. I suppose um, under the current framework, nothing would prevent a doctor from at least making the application. But to date, I don't think we've seen any approvals from the the medicines regulator that's handling these special access scheme applications, um, where they're saying, "Yeah, for this oncology condition, um, we accept medicinal cannabis as a as a therapy yeah. option." I guess, you know, it's, it's not, sometimes, especially with these applications, you want to be quite careful with the way that you say, you know, you, you justify why you're trying to apply for the medications. Because even though uh, TGA uh, say that it has to be a, um, not necessarily last resort, but it has to be something, you know, a, a condition that you have tried and failed other therapies. And in a case of something like advanced cancer, they might not have any other chemotherapy options and they might not be able to have further radiotherapy or, or might be not, they might not be a candidate for immunotherapy, in which case they don't have any other option. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, technically they come under the, the, uh, they can apply for things under criteria of, you know, having trial and fill multiple medications. By the same time, the question is more about what are you trying to achieve? Because right? are you, do well, we know also what dose is going to help? potentially, you know, with, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking as well, there is a separate category under special access scheme that's often not talked about. I know that for yeah. most people who are going through the special access scheme pathway for accessing medicinal mm. cannabis legally, um, uh, they would go down the category B, but um, where you have to make an application and actually receive an approval or, or an authority from the TGA. Mm. Whereas I think is it, SAS category A is category it? Category A, yeah, that's yeah, right. Category A is simply just you give notice to the TGA 
that you are prescribing an unapproved therapeutic good, but it's only for situations where the person has a, a terminal illness. So it's an end of life treatment. Is, is my understanding correct there? Palliative. Yeah, yeah. So I look, yeah, no, that's a very good question because I looked into it a lot as well because I mean, now that you're mentioning it, I, I, I do actually have a couple of patients that, um, that, uh, saw me because we were trying to, you know, help with symptoms like nausea because they had brain metastases, like brain uh, tumor in the brain. Um, someone else had quite advanced cancer as well. And while I was trying to go through the T the, the SASB application, by the time I, I, so one patient, once I got it back and sent the script to the pharmacy, she had passed away. And then another patient who, uh, you know, just before I got the, the approval, she had passed away. And this is not something that was quite, um, you know, expected as well, because I thought that they might maybe still have maybe a few months potentially, but these are, this is a thing you never really know. Um, but you're, you're, you're right in that the SAS uh, category A um, allows for a notice, so it's a, a notification process for patients who uh, potentially have like, yeah, a terminal illness that uh, gives them maybe a few months to live, but the, the, um, the, they could um, have uh, either passed away or have um, deterioration within, you know, unexpectedly. Uh, but the issue with that is that the, the ODC or the Office of Drug Control has made it such that patients who go through that, 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 that um, process uh, have to have a product that's imported but not one that's imported through, you know, the government. So not the ones that you already have here from Canada or wherever. So that that scheme is really for the scheme or that 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 category is really for patients who want to import their own product from or a product from from overseas. Um, but again, the issue is that then you might as well go through the category B because that would be quicker than trying to get importation license and things from you know overseas so right. yeah that's that's so why they have that category don't really know <laughs> because yeah. they make it quite difficult it's not I, like it's... you can already have the, the medication here and then have that notification process so there are um you have to first get that that notification and then go through odc to get the importation and so there is actually i'm not sure if you got, uh, if you guys have seen but on the CES portal uh, where you click through either SAS A or SAS whichever route you want to go through. Under the SAS A, there's quite a long paragraph that says, note that the, the, the time of processing, even though it's within two days, but by the time you get the importation uh, through, it will, will be longer so much so that um, the SAS B will probably be a quicker way. So there's yeah. actually a paragraph that says that. And that's really what they need to do is amend the, the regulatory framework to enable, because at the moment, um, category B, as is, yeah, we mentioned before, is an application and then you await approval, whereas category A is just simply give notice to the regulator. But of yeah. course, if you're then confined to a separate personal importation scheme, um, it's it's it just renders the whole thing futile, um, especially- yeah, It's the purpose, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, time is of the essence. Um, yeah, very interesting. And so, what, yeah, that's um, right. So it's yeah. Sorry, go on. No, that's okay. I'll I'll let you finish. Oh, oh no, I was going to say. So sometimes I guess it depends on the approval times as well because 
uh, sometimes I get the approval within two hours. Somehow it's really quick. And sometimes I get the approval within 24 hours. But there was you know, a period of time where the approval was seven days. So if, if the SAS B approval comes through quickly enough, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really affect things too much. But it's more that it's very unpredictable with the processing time. But absolutely, I think there should be a separate scheme where, where, where you can just notify because you really want to get these medications out to patients urgently. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But in terms of um, coming back to the um, chat about cancer, what are the more common you know, things you would prescribe for? Is it more um, nausea? Uh, you know, from, is, that, is that probably the most common uh, indication that you would actually apply for special access to? So it's actually it's interesting because I think it's a it's a combination of a few a few indications. So for example, I have a patient who has uh, who's had breast cancer and radiotherapy and chemotherapy, and she, you know, um, is that connection okay? Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she she got she's got a lot of anxiety surrounding her breast cancer diagnosis and and the treatment previously, but she also has a lot of chronic pain so like nerve pain after surgery because uh, they tend to affect you know the underarm uh, nerves and things but she also had insomnia so then i a lot of these patients have not just one issue they have you know multiple issues that medicinal cannabis could could be beneficial uh, or could you know be beneficial for so but so that's one patient i've got another patient who had um who has active uh, esophageal cancer and has a lot of nausea vomiting she's like 90 and she um she had a lot of weight loss as well and she wasn't eating and now is on you know medicinal cannabis three times a day and she's eating and she's put on weight so it's really a mixture i can't really say that there are um you know certain indications that are, that's more prevalent with these patients because most of them tend to have um uh multiple indications that that you know medicinal cannabis uh, could help them with yeah uh, but you know that and, and that's that's the thing that is is very helpful because you might have patients with you know nausea and vomiting might uh and pain they might have to have a myriad of medications to help with with you know all those problems but medicine cannabis and the good formulations or different formulations can help with a lot of these yeah and I think just, that's know, simple sort of um, tailoring of medication i think that's something we hear common uh you know patients with maybe a combination of sleep disorders, anxiety, pain, they kind of all get uh, attacked by um, ca cannabis, if that's the right word to use or, or remedy to some description, um, potentially in terms of trying to figure out combinations of polypharmacy that might work together. Um, yeah, very interesting. And can I ask, is it more, do you, do you find you're more reaching for the CBD or THC scripts or a combination with, with, with these types of um prescriptions no that's that's quite interesting because i guess a lot of the it's not just about the indication and what you know thc and cv might help with it's also about um the regulations around driving is, is the main thing for people mm -hmm. as well because just because like if i think that they have insomnia and they might um you know benefit from something with thc at night time we have to Still be very careful about advising about driving and some people will go okay well no like no, I, I i really i really can't because i have to drive every day or like you know 200km a week and stuff like that so so that's the barrier to them accessing uh, particular you know formulations but 
I would say that a lot of these patients, because of the nature of, um, of the symptoms they have, a lot of them mostly benefit from some sort of a balanced medication to help with, you know, whether it's mood-related disorders, but also pain um, and appetite and insomnia. So balanced ones are one of the most common ones, but also depends on time of day. So if, if patients just go, oh, my steroids not, is causing me to not be able to sleep very well, I just need something at nighttime, then THC medications are very helpful. But I also have patients who just have um, quite severe anxiety and um, and uh, want to have just you know a CBD based medication to help with the anxiety. So uh, it's it is a whole a whole um, what do you call it? Uh, there are lots of different medications I would I, I would prescribe for it depending on the indications. Excellent. Did you? Um, I'm I'm just curious. Also, in your time, I know that you would have gained some really valuable experience in your um yeah in your burgeoning medical career during your time at canadoc because i feel that canadoc at least to my knowledge was one of the first um cannabis clinics um so you know what what did you pick up on then and what kind of i assume you were prescribing cannabis for a broader range of medical conditions than you know um oncology symptoms or, or anything mm. like that. So can you share your experiences with that clinic perhaps? Yeah. So the, I guess the, the, the nice thing about a clinic, you know, because it, it gets triaged through potentially like a reception team and they would, you know, give or, or send patients to whomever has availabilities and when, when, it, when patients can make it. But um, I just, yeah, it was, it was very interesting because you had such a wide range of, of people who have obviously found the clinic through, you know, um, different means, but I, you know, patients with multiple sclerosis, uh, chronic cancer, non-cancer pain, anxiety, it was a good, um, a good clinic to really have a lot of exposure to lots of different, um, conditions and really start to think about the different types of formulations and medications that could potentially help these uh, different conditions, but also start to realize that just because, you know, 10 patients have the same problem, like 10 patients have chronic pain, they all have different dosing medication regimes. And um, it was a very, you know, good experience to, to gain a lot of, of experience in, uh, in, in managing different conditions. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and, and in terms of, you know, since Canadoc, you're obviously now doing an independent uh, cannabis clinician practicing. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about what uh, this next frontier holds for you in terms of, uh, you know, what, um, what patients might need if they were to see you. Yeah, um, it's funny because today someone someone else had asked me the same thing. They said, "Oh, is there is there anything that's different uh, to what you're doing at Canada versus what you're doing now?" I think that's the other good thing about Canada that they are, uh, you know, practitioners and doctors are allowed to be quite independent in and how they prescribe and and how they manage patients. And so, you know, when I start up my independent practice, I don't feel very much different. Uh, to how I, I practiced before. I think certainly 
um, at the moment, I'm doing everything by myself, so I don't have administrative help. So that's that's one thing that's different. But you know, I still spend the same amount of, of time and care with patients and education. Um, and I think that you know, at the moment, lots of patients have been finding me either through pharmacies or I had a patient who go who went who emailed me on my website and said. Hi, Dr. Shu. I was just wondering if this is your old practice or new practice because you know, I just wanted to, to um, see you and uh, continue our care. Because fair enough, some patients I've seen you know, for six months, a year, and they just want that continuity, and that's, and that's okay. Mm. Um, but you know, I think that because I was so uh, flexible and, and, and independent already, as it is in, in, in Canada, that you know, it, it pretty much feels the same. There's maybe on my own yeah yeah fair enough and in terms of are oh, you go andrew i just had a question about that idea of being independent because i think it's um particularly um becoming more important I, I suppose because we are seeing um you know different clinics have ties to you know certain products and things like that I, i'm I suppose just being independent is your observation that there is a standardized level of care and treatment um, across cannabis doctors around Australia, or do you find that sometimes a patient might go to one clinic and get given a product and then could go to another clinic and the doctor might have a completely different view based on, you know, commercial arrangements behind the scenes that patients don't mm. necessarily have access to? Yeah, absolutely. It is an interesting question because even in my time in Canada, I've had patients who were patients of other clinics that had vested interest in specific products and whether or not those products weren't really suitable and they couldn't really prescribe anything else. And so they've, they've come to you know, us or, or other um, doctors that you know can prescribe, you know, pretty much anything on the market. And, you know, I think that having a, a clinic or a, a doctor that is that prescribe solely specific products is probably easy for them because there's only you know five different medications or whatever it is that they have to really familiarize themselves with and the difficulty with someone like myself being an independent independent practitioner is having to be familiar with everything and but also knowing the options and really trying to to um, choose medications that are tailored according to patients and um I, I quite like that. And I always tell patients as part of my initial consultation, I don't have any financial interest with any you know, companies and medications. So I prescribe what suits you best. And I think that patients do appreciate that, that um, flexibility and, and being able to um, choose or, or access products uh, you know, that are available to them. I have patients who go, oh, I've got... Um, I, I, my, one of my friends was, you know, on this medication, and they have the same similar symptoms to I, I like to what I have. So I'm wondering if I could try that, and I, yeah, sure, you know, if this is something you would like to trial, and I think it's appropriate, then sure. But I can't imagine that other other clinics will just have their own agenda about, you know, prescribing certain medications. And I think it's not necessarily, in my opinion, anyway, the most ethical way to go around things. I think patients should have the the option of, you know, being given. Uh, different choices um, but I certainly think that you know like clinics like Canada and certainly lots of clinics where you have that that freedom to choose whatever product you think suit best and you know works well is I would say a, a good way to go. 
It is because it's, I mean, you get, uh, I, I think the other um, pathway can restrict patient choices ultimately, you know, whereas if a, a doctor's free to really just prescribe whatever product they deem is, is appropriate, they have a lot more latitude to work with the array of legal medicinal cannabis products that are available in Australia mm-hmm. at the moment, or indeed, um, you know, write a compound script, whatever they might yeah. choose to do. So, no, I totally. I agree. think it's it is it is a unique industry in in a sense where you know you, I'm not sure you might know better than than I, but um, other medicine areas, you, you know, you wouldn't really ask for a brand name necessarily. No. In, yeah. in other, you might say, look, I prefer. Panadol to paracetamol from you know the the, the generic, for example. Mm. But beyond that, you're not like oh, I feel like trying this strain or or this type of product this week or you know it's literally the same product. But can I get, sometimes can I get, have, can I get a full spectrum Nurofen? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just imagine. <laughs> but but it's but it's like you, you don't you don't really find that variation batch to batch in in a single kind of product um, or a single you know, mm. active ingredient. Uh, you know, and I think there's, you're, you're finding there's a lot more variance, at least I'm, I'm sure in your experience, or maybe you can tell us um, the the types of products that, that, you know, you're looking for as a, as a prescribing um, doctor, what, what, uh, what seems to work better, what seems to work more effectively. I know it's very nuanced depending on the patient mm. and their, and their indication, mm. but are you finding kind of general trends? Yeah, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard to, to really necessarily say that there's one thing that influences, you know, choices and things, but um, cost is a big factor. There are the medications that, say, for example, balanced medications that can work. I've got patients who've tried different balanced medications and go, oh, they all work pretty similarly for me. And so they choose the one that's most cost effective, for example. But then, you know, it's also about, let's say, TGA, um, or medications you could that goes that you apply through TGA, so the shelf medications um, that are the ready-made, if you like, and medications. Uh, sometimes choices also revolve around the formulations that that brand might have, you know, that you might think that might work well for some patients. Um, and yeah, like you mentioned also like full spectrum isolates, whether a brand has an isolate and patient might want to try an isolate. Um, and uh, also it is nice to have that choice. I've had patients who've had certain brand medications and then switched over to a different brand with the same supposed uh, formula like THC content and they tolerated that better than the other ones. So, you know, it is it is um, like how I guess influences my choices is about um, patient indication um, and, you know, whether we choose, that, whether we think about some formulations, also patient experience, what they've had before, or what they know has worked well for people that they know and they want to travel the same thing, for example. But that's just, it's just hard to, to really, you know, pinpoint things because it's just such a variety of, of reasons as to why you might choose a certain product. And it can be hard for practitioners like myself, I guess, who's, you know, free, who has freedom to choose anything mm-hmm. to really keep abreast of all the different um, uh, medications but when you find a brand and formulation or other brand that that works really well that is of good quality that you have good communication with the distributors or the suppliers or you know the companies that's quite important and support also because there's sometimes you know, sometimes I want to ask somebody about the medications and about indications and, and things that might be a bit curly 
and it's nice to to know that there is support from different companies and some companies are more you know ready with their, their support than others mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that is sort of a, a determining factor why i think relationships with with um, you know, companies about support and, and, and things like that for not just practitioners, but for patients as well. Um, I actually have a patient who, who said that, oh yeah, I spoke to, you know, this, the, this, um, the director of the, uh, of who, who supplies this, of the, of the company and we talked about the types of medications that could help. And so sometimes patients go, I want to go with this brand because, you know, I've spoken mm. to this guy. Mm. So yeah, lots of, of reasons why you choose like different, different, different brands. Yeah, I was going to choose a medicine at um, Amcal the other day because I was speaking to the CEO of Pfizer and I was just like, you know, what do you feel like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's it, that's it, that's yeah. right. Yeah, it's a little bit a little bit different at the moment, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. yeah but the other thing also actually just reminds me that um, that I do have patients who go, oh, you know, are these Australian grown? Are these Australian made? Are these Australian companies? Because I want to, especially during COVID times, they go, I want to support Australian companies and things like that. So that's actually also a consideration for some patients with, with the source of, of uh, products and, and things as well. That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've heard increasingly people, and I think people trust the Australian quality um, at, at the moment or in general, you know, over the years, we've got a great reputation pharmaceutically. And, um, you know, just look at uh, even not in baby formula, for example, just the, the quality of production. <laughs> you know, uh, a different level. That's so right. yeah, mm, mm, that's yeah absolutely. You're going to say, Andrew? Oh, no, I was just thinking, um, yeah, there's at the moment, the marketplace is um, a, a bit of a, you know, quite a hybrid model between imports and, and domestic. And, you know, there'd be um, certain imported products that I think wouldn't be made available, available domestically. So it's, it's a bit of a difficult one, but I fully understand the the thinking of it is good to to support local industry. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, I think we're moving towards a spot where I think in the fullness of time we'll have quite a comprehensive product offering that will be all grown and, and manufactured domestically here in Australia. Yeah. Um, and we're just not not there yet, but we're uh, we're well on our way. There's some really exciting local projects um, that are on the on the ground and. Yeah, well, um, just, you know, watch and see, really. It's but, one of those um, funny ones where, you know, sometimes depending on, you know, your, I guess, maybe your social circle, but sometimes people see, for example, with cars, like, oh, a German car is a sign of quality, for example, mm-hmm. yeah, um, mm-hmm. versus maybe potentially some Australian ones in the past, not all, but some. Um, but I, I think there's... Like, do you get a Holden V8? Um, <laughs> product or do you get you know an audi broad spectrum i'm more talking about the sterility but but the the australian the australian grown is very yeah i'm seeing not just demand in australia but also overseas mm. um, you're, mm. you're starting to hear people um be like oh it'd be interesting to see you know australia's got the right climate the right um whether it's actually to produce yeah. and, and um, you know, the standards of, of production are, are very high. And we're seeing that now where everybody yeah. else, for example, America and North America has um, kind of rushed into producing cannabis and, and mm-hmm. the quality that's coming out there varies well, greatly. But we have so many different microclimates here as well. I mean, it's kind mm. of, you look at where all the different sort of cultivation sites are, are operating from, you know, there's, regional Vic, regional Queensland. I mean, there's, there's just such a breadth of, um, of different climates. So 
Um, but yeah, we're, um, as you would know, Shu, we follow <laughs> the industry at a cultivation level, a That's clinic right. level. We just keep an eye on, on everything. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. But Very def- exciting developments, yeah. Definitely a question that uh, I think is great. Whenever we have a medical practitioner, we're always very interested to know uh, the, what are the most you know, common questions you get? What are the, you know, for the patients out there or prospective patients, people thinking about um, maybe switching from you know, black market to legal market, mm-hmm. things like this, what are the important factors they need to know about you know, accessing medicinal cannabis in Australia and some of the major questions that you get asked? Yeah, I guess the number one question is, can I access it? <laughs> so, you know, about the eligibility and things, which really isn't, you know, I think maybe three, four years ago, there was this, there was, um, uh, you know, a thought that you have to, it must be last resort. You must have trialed and failed like everything on earth before you can access medical cannabis. And we know that's not true because, you know, it, you might not want to to try you know ten different pain medications or ten different antidepressants before accessing medicinal cannabis. I mean, um, a lot of them can work quite similarly and create, give you the same sort of side effects and things. And so you might try have tried one and then don't really want to you know give antidepressants or other pain medication another go. And so, um, you know, the the eligibility criteria is the main question that people want to know: Can I access medicinal cannabis if I have had this medical condition. And so, yes, if they have a chronic medical condition uh, that's diagnosed and, you know, investigated in, in the past and have, you know, trialed some form of medication and whether it's partially effective or they've developed side effects and couldn't tolerate those medications. You know, so quite a lot of people um, who are interested can actually access these medications because they would have, you know, either spoke to their GP about it, have had some form of therapy previously. Um, so that's you know one of the questions, and the other main questions are also, you know, what uh, do I have to do, do? Do I have to be smoking weed <laughs> to to be, yeah. be considered medical cannabis? And and no, because I had that conversation today as well. Because then I said, no, 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 you know, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to be smoking anything. What else is there? And so the the forms of medicinal cannabis. Uh, whether you know, TGA approved and things uh, or compounded, but also what administration routes um, and the types of products are usually also quite, uh, you know, uh, question people ask, but also cost because I guess they would say three, four years ago, it was really expensive, you know, the grand scheme of things. But then um, in the recent times, as demand has increased, it's really driven down the, the cost for patients as well. So it becomes a bit more, because it's so cost prohibitive before. And now it's, it, it is, it's not the cheapest medication, but it's still, you know, something that can be affordable for patients. Um, and, and it's something that, that people, you know, even in the medical industry, some doctors will ask, have patients tell me this, and my doctor said it was very, very expensive. And so they didn't recommend it. And then when I tell them about, you know, average price and if, you know, we prescribe something, this is the cost, depending on how much you use, they go, oh, this is like, you know, three, four times less than what I thought it was going to cost me. So that, that I mean, that's, that's, that's great. And um, so, yeah, I mean, definitely those are, I think that's the, the, the main questions that, that I get from people. Yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty consistent with what we hear. The, can yeah. I access it? You know, am I going to get high? <laughs> is it might be worth also just if if you could i like what are some of the um because I, th- I think there's a, a maybe a 
an assumption from a lot of people that might be going to visit a cannabis doctor that, oh, you know, I'm going to a cannabis doctor. I'll, I'll be able to get legal cannabis. But I suppose mm. to dispel that myth, what are some of the reasons that you would choose not to prescribe a patient? Mm. Yeah, great question. Because certainly I've had to so reject is a very strong word, but I've had to, you know, decline some patients or say that they're not, they're not, it's not appropriate or slightly not suitable. Decline. Not, not, like, not, <laughs> yeah, a, not exactly. a hard rejection. Get out of my, get out of my clinic now. <laughs> That's right. But also I think a lot of the times people want to know the reasons as to why they might not be suitable and think that they don't, they just don't know. And, 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 you know, when you should sort of explain that they, they go, okay, well, thank you for, for letting me know. Actually, this, I, at my time in Canada, there were times I, I looked at referrals for the next day and even, you know, seeing the patient's referral going, oh, I don't think they're eligible and I'll give them a quick call and just have a quick chat for free but go you know, and then they go oh thanks very much for telling me i didn't know this I'll, I'll do this and that and stuff like that so in terms of reasons i guess you know if, they, if somehow they didn't get through to the eligibility criteria or someone going through the eligibility criteria with them uh then that's one of the reasons if they actually had some acute problem like i fractured my leg you know two weeks ago and, and i want to send medical cannabis um or they actually didn't um, try any sort of conventional medication. Not necessarily that I agree that you must have tried something, but that is a TGA requirement that you must have trialed some form of, you know, registered medication, conventional therapy before actually accessing medicinal cannabis. Um, but also other things like um, uh, previous history. So if they've had a history of, of schizophrenia or psych uh, psychotic disorder, um, I'm not saying that it precludes them from from accessing medical medical cannabis, but they must have a psychiatrist involvement who is you know happy with their progress or is stable under medications or maybe they haven't had a psychotic episode for you know years and their psychiatrist supports them using THC based medications for example. So, um, what about also, just on that one? Hmm. sorry, just curious, yeah. about, like family mental illness history so you know if say you know my uncle or mm. you know, yeah like someone close or brother or something like what, what what would be the um the response is that just more background for the doctor to sort of really monitor a little bit more closely or could it actually be a material decisive factor in saying hey sorry you know your sister had schizophrenia i'm not comfortable um prescribing to you mm. Yeah, so it's really about um, it's really about that knowledge of what their family history might be like. But also, I think it's also on the TGA website. I think that yeah. if you want to not preclude, but then if someone has a strong family history, so you say I've got you know five brothers and all of them have schizophrenia, and I just you know I maybe I'm eighteen or twenty and I don't have schizophrenia, but maybe it's not it's still you know um it hasn't shown itself and. So some of the issues with, with THC, for example, is that it can unmask schizophrenia uh, in younger patients. And so it's more about the strong family history, but I don't necessarily mean that it, 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 it absolutely excludes them from having you know, any form of medicine cannabis, but it's more about um, knowing the risks, also being able to you know, think about what sort of formulations you might choose, maybe you know, don't choose either THC free or low THC medication first, but also having 
um, then make sure that they have the appropriate specialist care as well um, if something should happen. But it's um, it, it definitely, you know, it's something of consideration. Like I had a patient who has chronic fatigue, but she, her, her mom had, had bipolar, her sister had bipolar with, with a psychotic episode. And she was really, really worried that if she took anything with, with, with THC that she would, you know, um, have the same sort of problem. But it took a lot of education to, to work out, you know, why her, how her sister had um, or why or when her sister had those symptoms. Uh, we decided that it was, we deduced that it was more drug related that her sister developed, you know, psychosis. And so um, eventually she moved on to THC medications with no problems. So it's a lot about um, trying to elicit what the risks are than actually saying, nope, you've got a family history. Nope, you know, your, your yeah, uncle, yeah. your great uncle had that. So yeah. And do you find when you do politely decline somebody's um, interest in receiving a medicinal cannabis treatment, do they furiously take notes about your reasons and then find their way to another cannabis doctor to try and get it right the second time? Or how, how does that often play out? I'm sure you must have heard stories then if you're asking the question, <laughs> because I certainly have had, you know, someone, so because the idea is that you want to make sure you're prescribing things as safely as possible. And so, you know, I've had a patient who had a, a, a psychotic episode that 10 years ago, and sure, maybe it was 10 years ago, and maybe it hasn't happened since. And I said, well, I still do need any underlying mental health disorder. I said, oh, so, you know, if we could get some form of a clearance or something from your psychiatrist, and people have done that, you know, they've got, gone to the psychiatrist, had a few sessions, and they said, okay. But like this particular patient just went, uh, no, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, no, thanks for help. I'm just going to uh, call a different clinic and not tell them that I've had this episode. <laughs> okay. But what can you do? Right? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Um... <laughs> By the way, we just got a cameo from Ava, which was incredible. Uh, your lovely friend, Ava. <laughs> Just wandering around in the background, just a very interested yeah. audience member. <laughs> Love it. Just staring here. It's very um, 2021. Like, Bring your dog to work it day. Is. Yeah, it is because look at this now. She was uh, I'm I'm at one of those like sit stand desks, and I've got you know uh, my table's quite high, so she usually just jumps on my lap, and she's done that when I've been with patients. But this is too high for her to jump, but she loves to make an appearance. I'd love it's to bring, say, bring your dog to working from home day. <laughs> bring your dog to working it's from right. home she day. It. <laughs> it's, I'd, I'd love to say it was the first dog we've had on the show. Unfortunately, it's our second. Darn yeah. it. Old Steve's oh, okay. um, CBD reviews. Yeah, first yeah. Best oh, dog. lovely. Um, for those listening, <laughs> we are just looking at one of the cutest dogs I think I've ever seen. Um, lovely little Ava, the Italian greyhound. If your last name is NG and you're on our show, you've got to you've got to bring a dog. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's it. Um, um, well, that's probably good. a nice note that's for it. us to wrap up on. If uh, unless you had any more questions, Mitch, I I've, I feel like oh. we've. I, or alternatively, I'll, I'll put it this way: um, given that we wax lyrical with you from time to time, anyway, I'm sure we could possibly <laughs> persuade her to come back on for another episode. I'm sure oh, there'll be plenty to speak about in the future. Yeah. Because yeah. we, we'd also love to hear, because I, I mean, just now that you've been in a clinic and now you're going to be operating um, independently as a, as a cannabis doctor, would love to hear about all the trials and tribulations as you um, as you start the journey on, on this front independently. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going to cap off with, 
I'm going to cap off with the question that we like to ask at the end here, which is, do you think medicinal cannabis or cannabis will be available recreationally in Australia? And if so, what timeline? I, by the way, I was talking about this question recently um, with another mate and they said um, cannabis is already available recreationally. Um, in ACT. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. Or wherever. But anyway, no, I'm yeah. just, just trying Legal, to... Legally, legally, oh, sorry, <laughs> legally. Sorry, sorry, just caveat there. I was um, just trying to give a shout out to the, uh, the to the black market listeners out there. But um, no, sorry, Dr. Shu, any ideas on... Uh, on... <laughs> uh, I think everyone, I, I think I sway here and there, but my, my opinion is still that we're, we're, we're quite mildly backwards. I was very conservative in very many uh, regards. I mean, even when I was doing radiation oncology and was very much technologically based and things, and I always used to say, you know, I think that we're kind of like five years, not more um, behind places like the US and things, even with in, in that industry. And I think that if with medicinal cannabis, um, and, and actually legalizing recreational cannabis. Um, but you're right, Mitch, it, it is um, legal recreationally in, in ACT. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I'll be very, very obviously it depends on who's in, um, in, in, in politics and you know, the, who's um, uh, the major party. But also, um, I don't know. I would not think that it would be like I'll listen back to this you know five or ten years later and see what I said and whether I was wrong or right but I don't think it will be legalized recreationally at least in Victoria or maybe other states in uh, Australia for another at least like five to ten years I think but you really don't know how the scene changes you know it's so dynamic and I think that like you mentioned the recreational users and the listeners out there you know, are they holding on to hope that one day it's going to be legalized recreationally? But certainly, seeing a lot of um, a lot of that happening in the in the in the US and you know other countries as well. And I think what's going to happen is that uh, Australia is going to take some years. It takes take a few years to see what the impact or long term impact is on those countries first before actually you know having some form of data to say this works well. It doesn't increase crime and you know uh, or, or um, um, uh, road-related, you know, things, sorry, uh, injuries, and so um, I think it will take a good few years before before they actually come up with that data and think about whether or not they want to pursue that. No, I think it's that's interesting. Safe, yeah. safe is, I think five to ten years is generally in the range that that we're we're hearing. So take note, mm. politicians. I mean, hopefully some <laughs> of them start listening more to uh, Fiona Patton, um, but. Uh, but yeah, take notes, 2026 to 2031, if it's not done in that <laughs> period, you're going to get a backlash from... I think I think we saw ScoMo's IP on our viewership list, so we should be all right. <laughs> uh, well, then it's going to take a lot longer. To be uh, anyway. Um, all right. Well, on that note, we might uh, we might wrap up, but we'll definitely do this again, Shu. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah having Thanks you on so and, and Ava as well. Big shout out to Ava. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
we look forward to welcoming you both back on and maybe we might get a cameo next time from uh from your other lovely from, dog from, from vino yeah i don't really know what he's up to now but uh, yes eva yeah. does like an appearance so not surprised a little bit camera shy no we get it uh, <laughs> all right thank you so much you will uh we'll so soon. thank you, yeah, thank you. bye <laughs>